Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. So we are in the book of Colossians. I I think maybe this is the fourth week. I I really can't remember. So uh, Paul's letter to the church, churches in Colossae. You know, um, so sometimes when you think about interpreting the Bible, right? So sometimes interpreting the Bible can be really challenging. So it's like you got to know... You got to know hermeneutics. You got to understand exegesis. Sometimes you really got to know Greek and Hebrew, and it can be kind of it can be kind of high level, you know, intellectually up here. So I'm going to give you a way of interpreting the Bible that is kind of high level. All right, this this could go over your heads. All right, so buckle in. All right, you ready? Put the passage up there. I want to show you something. This is it. You paying attention? See that first word there? Whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you have to ask this high-level question. What is the therefore, therefore? (laughs) Right? There you go. You're an expert Bible scholar now. So why is it there? Well, Paul, in verse 5, is rejoicing over the quality and the firmness of their faith. I mean, he is just celebrating that they've got real faith. It's authentic, it's, it's genuine, it's lively. But now when we begin verse six, he is trying to turn the corner with them as they face this false teaching among them. So how are they gonna keep that faith real when they have opposition? So if you're willing and able, let's stand and let's uh, read this passage together. Verses 6 to 14. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And see to it, No one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcised in your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, 
nailing it to the cross. This is God's very word. Every bit of it is true. And he gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. All right. Going to play a little game with you guys. All right. This is called Name That Celebrity. Name That Famous Person. I'm going to throw some pictures up on the screen. And as fast as you can, let's see if you can recognize and name these celebrities. Here we go. Ready? Who's that? Harry Potter. Okay, come on. Eddie Murphy. Barack Obama. Hey, Saturday night did not get them all. You guys got them all. Here's what's interesting about that. You were just deceived. Those all are fakes. Those are just celebrity lookalikes. None of them were real. So what is real faith? What is fake faith? And does it even matter? Well, Paul writes to them because in Colossae they are being tricked. They're being pulled into fake teaching, false teaching, and Paul wants them to be anchored in real faith. He doesn't want them to be overtaken by what is empty, deceptive, and misleading. Let's take a sermon outline. Let's look at this passage together. First, real faith, real walking. Paul says, he says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul is rejoicing that they have real faith. But now he wants to impress upon them how real faith walks. He wants them to see the link between how they began the faith and how they move forward. He is challenging the false teachers among them who are suggesting that the Christian life begins one way, but it moves forward by another means. The false teachers were saying this, you begin by faith, but you move forward by works. They're saying, oh yeah, grace, grace, that's all great, but that's just for beginners. If you wanna keep God's favor, you better break a sweat. You gotta earn it. When my kids were little, you know, like, like all parents, you, you, know, you send your kids to school with lunch, right? So uh, we'd make our kids a sack lunch. And, uh, but wouldn't it be crazy if I told my kids one morning as they're going out the door carrying the little sack lunch going to school, if I said to them, hey, when you get to school and it's lunchtime, pull out your peanut butter and jelly sandwich and just smear it all over your body. Just rub it on your face, rub it on your arms. No. How do we grow physically? The food's got to get inside of us. One of the great mistakes made throughout church history, generation after generation, is to slather rules onto our behavior and to think that external behavior is what fosters or even accurately reflects vital spiritual growth. 
This is what the Pharisees were doing. Jesus said, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. But here's the thing. Slathering on rules on the external feels like it works, but it's a trap. Here's the thing. I could preach to you for the next 45 minutes and I could just lay on the guilt heavy. I could just really ride you guys. I could come down and say, you know know what? You guys are not good Christians. I mean, look at the lot of you. I've seen you in the store. I've seen you drive in Citrus County. You guys are not good Christians. You guys need to step up your game. Everybody here, all week long, I want you trying harder to be a good Christian. And you know what? After I laid it on heavy, some of you guys would walk out in the narthex afterwards and say, thank you, pastor. (laughs) You know why? Because guilt works. It actually does motivate you to do things. But you know what? After a while, it crushes you. It even makes you angry. Paul says the way you make progress is the same way you got started. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up, established in what you were taught. Walk in him, not walk to keep up with him. It's an ongoing relationship of total dependence, deeply rooted, established in what they were taught in the gospel. So what were they taught? They were taught that they were saved by grace, not by works. So Paul is reminding them to remind themselves that real faith walking is powered by God's relentless affection for us. Look what Paul says to the Ephesians. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that he may grant you to be strengthened with the power of his spirit in your inner being, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the power to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what exactly is Paul praying for the Ephesians? Is he praying that they would try harder to have greater obedience? Is he praying that the false teaching among them would be stomped out? No, he prays that they would have supernatural power. But is he praying for them to have power to walk on water? or power to do miracles, or even power to convert their neighbor? No. He's praying that they would have the power to know how much Jesus loves them. And not just to have the love of Christ, but to know the love of Christ. Look what Dane Ortland says. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace of us. Here's the thing, the controlling idea of your life must be that you are a dearly beloved child of God if you are in Christ. Otherwise, you can't do it. 
You were built for family love. You were built to have fatherly love. And unless that is a controlling idea of your life, you can't walk in Jesus. Tyler uh, Statton, in his book, Praying Like Monks But Living Like Fools, tells this story. He says this, My four-year-old son, Hank, reminds me daily, You're always going to love me, no matter what, though, Dad. Sometimes he says it just after I've dished out some consequences for unacceptable behavior. Other times it will be random, when I'm putting a dinner in front of him, dropping him off at school, tucking him at bed at night. You're always going to love me, no matter what, though, Dad. He won't let me get through the day without reminding me at least once Or is he asking? It's hard to tell. I think it's both. Yep, that's right, buddy, I'll reply. No matter what, I'm always going to love you. We grow in Christ no further than we enjoy his embrace of us. But how do we keep it real? Paul tells us, he says, that we are to be abounding in thanksgiving. That there's something that happens in us from time to time, something that just kind of leaps out of us. You know, that, that, that this abounding in thanksgiving is, is built in the reality, foundation of the reality, that, that there, are, there are moments when we are shocked that we're a Christian. That we just can't believe it. You know, Paul said this, he said, I am least of all the apostles. I'm the least of all the apostles because I persecuted the church. He says elsewhere, God came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst. You know what ought to happen sometimes? You ought to walk through those doors. You ought to walk into this room sometimes. And you ought to sit down, and you ought to look around, and you ought to to do this. (laughs) And just start shaking your head. I'm a Christian. Can you believe it? I mean, with all that I've done, with all that I struggle with in this life now, I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I can't believe this. Christ came into the world to save sinners. And I'm the worst. But I'm his. And so the waters of thanksgiving run deep. Second, Paul says, real faith is looking. In verses 8 to 10, he says to them, he says, see to it, be on the lookout, be discerning for anything that could take you captive, that could deceive you, that would rival Christ. So Paul is warning them against a dangerous philosophy among them that's made up of both elements of Judaism and Greek Gnosticism. Greek Gnosticism taught that a person must work his way up a series of lesser gods to reach the ultimate God. The false Jewish teachers were mixing Hebrew rites and ascetic regulations as a better way to move up the spiritual ladder. And it was all very kind of mysterious and complicated and astrological. 
And it was also very snooty. It was all presented as something more to elevate you from your crude baby faith into the deeper things of God. And so the pressure that was being put on them was simply this. If you want to be an elite spiritual person climbing the ladder towards real life and real knowledge of God, then you're going to need something more than Jesus. But what made them vulnerable to this? What makes us vulnerable? It's the problem that we have that's underneath the problem. We all have an insatiable desire to be elite, to be approved by others, by God. These false teachers were creating this elitist status of climbing the structure for approval, and it was inciting everyone's pride You see, nothing can enslave us more than us wanting to be accepted and approved above the rest, to be loved and celebrated for what we've made of ourselves, what we've been able to accomplish. And what begins to spin out of our life is envy and jealousy and self-loathing and comparing. Do you realize, do you realize that often your moods are dictated by how people respond to you? How small and unimportant you can feel at times about how other people react to you, react to your presence. You know, why are we so fretful about performance, like our grades or job reviews? Or why does it bother us so much when in a conversation with others, we don't come out in the best light and we feel an over need to make sure everything is understood? Why is there pervasive, slow-burning anxiety boiling within us sometimes when we go to a social gathering? Why are we so devastated by criticism, perceived or real? Because we want to be accepted. We want to be approved. We have a strong thirst to be justified. We feel empty. We want to be full. And this makes us vulnerable to things that rival Christ. It makes us vulnerable to idolatry. It makes us vulnerable to any kind of ism, materialism, tribalism, political self-righteousness, anything that would make us feel above the rest. So how do we resist being a slave, being taken captive to this thirst we have to be inside, to be approved, to be welcomed in? When I was in sixth grade, in those years from like sixth grade to ninth grade, The thing that kind of made you popular, the thing that made you accepted among some of the kids that I hung out with was underage smoking. I mean, people uh, in my neighborhood, in the back alleys of where we live, the kids wandering the area, everybody everybody was smoking. And, uh, and, And I was offered cigarettes all the time by my friends. It was how you were accepted into the group. So my dad did something that was brilliant. He sat all five kids down one day and he said to us, he said, if you don't smoke as a kid, when you turn 18, I will give you a hundred dollars. A hundred dollars. This is 1976. That's like a thousand, you know? And I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. So the very next time I'm in the back alley, not far from my house, walking with a group of my guys and they're offering, pushing a cigarette on me. And I tell them about the $100 and they're like, 
No kidding? Your dad's going to give you a hundred bucks? Well, pretty soon I didn't have to say anything. You know, I'd be with another group of guys and, and someone would push a cigarette on me and one of the other guys would speak up on my behalf. He'd say, Jones, he's not going to smoke. His dad's giving him a hundred dollars. Can you believe that? Or one time this kid goes, I wish I had a dad like that. What does Paul say is our power to resist? He says the fullness of Christ dwells in bodily form and you have been filled in him. Last week, Brandon talked about the mystery. The mystery was Christ in you. His fullness that you are at the top of the ladder now. So what does it mean to have the fullness of God in Christ? It means that you have God's face. You have his favor. You have his delight. Do you have kids? When your kids were little, did you just go in their bedroom sometime and just watch them sleep? And your heart just gets large. That's what he's talking about. The power to resist is that we are full. The fullness of Christ in you. Third, standing. Real faith is standing. The false teachers among them were arguing that you needed to have certain experiences in order to have real faith. The pressure was Jesus is not enough. You're not good enough, you're not doing enough, and you're not having experiences that would lift you to higher faith. But Paul pushes back on that. He reminds his readers that they have experienced something fully that far exceeds anything on the Gnostic ladder of spiritual ascent. Did you, did you hear about... Um, did you hear about the Taylor Swift concert? Okay. Taylor Swift had a big concert in Tampa and Atlanta. She's kind of on tour. You know, it was a really big deal. It was a big deal. Now, imagine four people, right? Three of them went to the Taylor Swift concert. Oh, and they're talking about the concert and how awesome it was. And the one person who didn't go is trying to kind of get into the group, get into the conversation. And they say, well, you know, I like Taylor Swift too. And they look at this other person. Then they go back to talking about the concert. And then it happens. The big snub. One of the people who went to the concert turns to the one who did not and says, well, you would know what we're talking about if you had been there. But you weren't there. So how can you really know? Right? Paul is telling his readers, you have participated in the events of the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's the foundation of your standing circumcision was being pushed on these Gentile believers as a mark, as an experience to have real faith. So Paul leverages this false idea and tells them that in Christ, they themselves were circumcised not by hands, but by the circumcision of Christ. Talking about Christ's death on the cross, 
He's saying it happened to you in him. Then he connects them to Christ's burial, that they were buried with him in baptism. And finally, they were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, when I was a teenager, I became a Christian through Young Life, a youth group organization. And we used to sing this song in Young Life all the time. And we would sing it and I'd go, this song just, it just really puzzles me. Here's the lyrics. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there? Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Were you there when he rose up from the grave? And every time we'd sing the song, I'd be like going, I don't understand the song because how could I have been there? I wasn't there. Paul says here, you were there. You were spiritually present in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus did not simply die for you. He died your death. You died in him. You were raised in him. You were there, spiritually, fully there. It's not, it's not just simply a, a historical event. It's your event because you're in him if you're a believer. You don't believe me? Look at Paul says in Galatians. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. It's not simply that Christ was crucified for you. I have been crucified with Christ. I was there. That's not all Paul does here. He says, God's made you alive together, forgiving us of our trespasses. And he says this in verse 14. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with legal demands set aside, nailing it to the cross. So Paul, he pulls them further into their standing in Christ and he reminds them of their guilt. He says there's a written code. It's revealed a record of debt that you're guilty of not obeying God, not meeting the legal demands of holiness. It's like, in a sense, that you've written out an IOU for what you're unable to keep in the demands. You've written an IOU out in your own handwriting, and Jesus has taken that IOU. You can't pay it, and he has nailed it to the cross. Remember, Pilate nailed Christ's accusation against him on the cross. That's what Paul's referring to. It's nailed there, publicly displayed, your sin, your guilt. What was hanging over your head in regards to condemnation, was hung over his head. I love the Phillips translation here. He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments, which always hung over our heads and has completely ignored it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. Now, Martin Luther 
wrote that one time he had a dream. And in the dream, Satan came to him with the list of Martin Luther's life written in Martin Luther's handwriting. And everything on there condemned Martin Luther. And in the dream, Satan comes to him and points to the list and said, is this you? Did you write this? And Luther says, it's true. That's me. And then the evil one is about to leave after having brought Luther down into the misery of who he is, the misery of who he's not. And then Luther turns to Satan and says, yes, it's all true. And I wrote it with my own hands. My own condemnation is hung over me, but written over it is the blood of Jesus. Can I tell you something? It's not a dream. There is no condemnation. There will be no finger of wagging in your face of condemnation from any direction. But we have to realize something else. There's something else that kind of hangs over us. Walter Henniger is a pastor in Atlanta. He is uh, my daughter Sarah's pastor. And he said that there's a word, a word that describes him and how he feels in 2023. And the word he says is inadequate, inadequate. He says, I'm not depressed. I'm not beating myself up. I simply am very aware of my my inadequacies in every respect. The responsibilities and the expectations that I have, I simply cannot match these demands with hours in a day, energy in my body, insights from my mind, motivation or perseverance. What is he doing? He's showing you the list. He's showing you the expectations that to live well, to live right, to be enough, to come through for others, to come through for his family, to come through. You know why I tell you that? Because his word is my word. I feel inadequate. I feel that way a lot. Sometimes I feel like it just hangs over me. Maybe you do too. Maybe you feel inadequate. That you're just not enough. Somebody on the church staff gave me this coffee cup a while back. I never dreamed I would be a super cool pastor, but here I am killing it. (laughs) Hey, I'm not killing it. I am not, I am not killing it. Whenever, when, 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 whenever someone says that they're inadequate, 
you know, we're, we're kind of conditioned to respond to that by saying, no, 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 you're awesome. You are awesome. You're smart. You're talented. You got what it takes. You can do this. I mean, people love you. We think that's what we need. We think that's what other people need. Did you know the Bible does not do that? The Bible does not try to cover over your sense of failure or your sense of inadequacy with good feelings. Jack Miller kind of sums up what the Bible says. He says this. He says, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think you are. (laughs) Then he adds this. He says, cheer up. You're more loved and delighted in in Christ than you can ever dream. So, yeah, the Bible says, you're inadequate. You're a sinner. You're so bad that Jesus had to die for you. There was no other way. But God's love and power and grace is so beautiful that Jesus was glad to die for you. So you don't have to be a super Christian. You don't have to be awesome because Jesus was awesome for you. And so this truth gives us the power for real faith to joyfully grow. Because it takes the focus off of your inadequacies and puts it on the abundance of God. It flushes out those toxins in us of anxiety and fear and shame. And it loosens that white knuckle grip we have on our life and our performance that we could just be enough, that we could outshine someone. And it lifts your gaze from that narrow little vision of yourself to your standing in Christ. Because you were there. You were there at the cross. So you know what hangs over your life now? Just one word. Beloved. That's what hangs over you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, would you help us to believe this? Gosh, we are so hard on ourselves. We are so hard on other people. We are so hard on things in life to squeeze something out. Would you, would you cover us in your affection? Would you help us to experience it and know it in such a way that we would be animated, abounding in thanksgiving, and seeing all that you are and what you've given us in the fullness of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.